Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast, or I shall say, the Wealth Formula Podcast. Today, before I get started, I want to point out something. We're on episode number 96 here today. And what I'd like to do is have episode number 100, which if you do the math is just a few weeks from now, be really an episode about you. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I'd like you to do is go to wealthformula.com and hit the speak pipe button. There's a feature on there called speak pipe. And I'd like you to tell me what your favorite things in the show were this week, what you what you enjoyed, what things that you learned, uh, and if the show has played a uh, any significant part in your life in the last year or so. Uh, that would be great. Uh, you can also use it to ask questions, as you know, on, uh, and we could play some of those things as well. But it would be great to have your voices along with mine as a way to celebrate episode number 100. And uh, whatever you do, uh, make sure you do that. Otherwise, I'm not going to have a show 100. I'll just skip to show 101. So um, anyway, wealthformula.com. And hopefully, Phil, is it easy to find? It's easy to find that speak pipe thing? Yes. Okay. He says it's easy. If it's not, email me because, you know, he's a 23-year-old cinematography guy. So he, he may not find some of us 40-plus-year-old guys have trouble with that kind of thing. So anyway, also want to remind you that I am going to be at the Note Buyer Boot Camp. Uh, this is George Newberry's event on April 18th and 19th. This, my friends, will be a fantastic opportunity for you to learn for yourself how to buy notes and have yourself a business just like George Newberry's. Maybe a little smaller, maybe you don't have a $40, $50 million fund, but but you know what? This is incredibly great, uh, just an amazing opportunity, and George is very generous to open up his secrets to the world, and uh, I'm excited for it. I'm planning on going, I'm planning on buying notes myself, getting into that business, and if it works well, which I hope it will, then maybe I'll start my own little fund on the side, you know? Anyway, I won't do it for $100 a pop like George does. Then you have to be like Mother Teresa to do that. But uh, at any rate, check it out. We'll have an event there while I'm there in Chicago, April 18th and 19th, Note Buyer Boot Camp. Go to wealthformula.com and get a $200 off uh, coupon there. I think there's some kind of code or something you put in and you can get some money off. Uh, also on wealthformula.com, as you know, uh, definitely try to get on the email list. Simply subscribe to the weekly wealth widget. Or download a copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, and that will be yours for free in PDF format. So it doesn't really cost me anything. But uh, number one bestseller, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, you can also get that simply by texting 44222 and type Wealth Formula, one word. Now, uh, in terms of today's show, let me just uh, provide this commentary to start. I don't even watch the nightly news anymore. Right. I don't even really I barely know what's going on because you see what's happened uh, is that the advent of this so-called 24 hour news cycle combined with our reality television culture has changed what used to be what we called the news really into just entertainment. The fundamental problem with this juxtaposition of news and entertainment, in my opinion, is that something that was supposed to be unbiased 
just facts really, right? Now it has to have some kind of an angle. It always has to have an angle. Plain old facts just aren't that interesting anymore. They have to be layered in commentary, you know, commentary that sells, right? I mean, after all, when you're out there today and you're watching the news, think of the role of the so-called pundit, right? Who are these people? They're like professional pundits, right? They go on shows just to argue with each other with diametrically opposed views. I mean, that is just created for the purpose of sh- of creating controversy. That didn't exist when I was a kid. You didn't have professional pundits. They were either experts on something or they weren't. They weren't, you know, like some talking head for the right or talking head for the left. It's just ridiculous. Uh, you know, the reality is that, again, plain old facts just aren't interesting anymore. Um, and the reality television culture that we live in dictates that anything on TV has to, in some way or, or another, be controversial. Because if it's not controversial, it's not at all interesting. Think about it. Why do people watch reality TV anyway? Well, they, they watch it because there's drama. We love to watch a car wreck, right? I mean, that's really what these things are. Um, and as long as we don't, you know, we have, we're out of harm's way, we love to watch a car wreck. A reality television allows for these, you know, dramatic stories of love, hate, betrayal, craziness. And that's what makes it addictive. Facts, unfortunately, are not addictive at all, right? They're kind of boring. And the irony of the times we live in is that reality TV culture has created a world in which there is, in fact, no real reality. I mean, you see this at the highest level in the highest offices in the land. I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, he says everything that is not favorable to him is is fake news. Now, to be clear, I'm, you know, I'm not getting on Trump's case. I mean, he, uh, I'm sure he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt from the press. Uh, I'm quite sure of that. But does that mean we throw out the baby with the bathwater? In other words, does that mean that all news is fake? And if it is all fake, what what do we have left to believe? Listen, this is, again, not really meant to be written as a political piece at all. I will say that I'm a guy with a strong libertarian sense. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I have a civil liberties uh, to the extent that people do what they want to do, but I also don't want government to get involved in with big government and, and tax the heck out of me either. I mean, so I am a fiscal conservative for sure, but I also, you know, don't really care what anybody else does with their body or their time and their, you know, the rest of the stuff. So my point is I'm not here to cast aspersions on politicians because uh, anybody I would really be really excited to see in office probably will never get there because a libertarian candidate, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon in mainstream politics. I just think, though, that we need to return to a fact-based society. Now, that that sounds like so basic, right? But if we can't at least establish the facts, then how can we ever make meaningful decisions about our future? I mean, this is a big problem. This kind of discourse is probably no more important in any topic than we see on in, in climate change, right? Because this is something that climate, the climate's changing. It is changing. You don't have to be a scientist to even see it. I mean, we've got so many, uh, you know, we, we're having thousand-year floods like every year now. I mean, that's not normal, right? And again, a few weeks ago, I had on Alex Epstein, who was the author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And a lot of people out there were ecstatic about that because they thought I was somehow condoning fossil fuels which I'm not, in fact, but I've invested in fossil fuels, so I'm not saying it's bad either. And some of you were really unhappy with me, and they didn't like the fact that I gave him a voice. You know, in reality, I just wanted to hear his perspective and try to understand some facts, right? When you go back to the show, regardless of what Alex actually believes, he didn't actually say that climate change is not real. He didn't say that. His thesis was actually whether or not Fossil fuels are good for humanity. He also, you know, didn't say that alternative fuels were bad, right? I mean, listen, folks, we should just be out there trying to get facts. We should be trying to understand what's reality 
and make our own decisions. There's no reason to get super excited one way or another. But people got energized on both sides, and they got fired up. And it was almost like all of a sudden I had a reality TV show or a reality podcast on my hands, and that was not my intention. Anyway, like I said, I'm a facts guy, and that's all I'm after. And my guest today uh, is a pretty hardcore alternative energy guy. And I know some of you had requested that because of the fact that I had on Alex. I wanted to make sure I did get somebody on there uh, who represented this. But this is a guy who is, you know, he's an alternative energy guy, but he also managed to keep a significant level of rationality about him. And I don't think he's, uh, you know, he's not a guy. He's a guy who appreciates facts, basically. So he's going to tell us about solar energy, and he's also going to tell us why it might actually make sense from not only from whatever moral case or our concern for our children, which we probably should have, right? Maybe if you believe in climate change, but also from a financial perspective, uh, what it is to invest in this area and if the new tax laws have actually made that perhaps a little bit easier. Anyway, when we come back, I'm going to talk to Stephen Honickman of Wiser Capital. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Stephen Honickman. Now, Stephen's uh, lifelong personal interest has been in clean tech. He's a partner at Wiser Capital, whose mission it is to deploy capital into uh, third-party financed uh, solar energy. He holds a, a, a law degree and uh, something called an MSTHA, which, he'll, which we'll ask him about, from Washington University in St. Louis. And he did his undergraduate work uh, in international relations and economics at Boston University. He's also a friend of the family. And this is the first interview we're doing in person because he lives in Santa Barbara. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Good morning. Thank you. So, Stephen, tell me a little bit about uh, your interest. You know, you sort of how did you get interested in this whole clean tech thing in the first place? It sounds like it's something that's been on your mind for a long time. Yeah, I'd probably blame my parents. Uh, they were born a little ahead of the hippie movement, but uh, had some some hippie roots. They probably wanted to be hippies, but were, were too early to the party. Uh, but I was raised as a result in a, in a solar home. Um, my dad, uh, who's a pretty smart guy, is a doctor from. Uh, Stanford, uh, his, his best friend when he was in that program at Stanford ended up being one of the first wind energy pioneers. And so some of the earliest memories I have are visiting wind farms and, and understanding that you didn't have to get energy from, you know, coal or other dirty sources. And then, you know, he was involved in solar energy from an early age. Uh, all of our showers are heated with water from the sun and uh, the jacuzzi in our backyard was heated with water from the sun. And, uh, and um, I, I, for better or worse, carried that with me uh, all through my childhood and into into college, where I pick up an interest in economics, and uh, sort of notice that the most fundamental thing we all have in common is this sort of crazy consumption of energy, and that crossed with my interest in making sure we had a you know a, an Earth and a planet to inhabit moving forward, suggested that we should probably find a source of energy that didn't destroy it in the process. And of course, it's more complicated than that, but that's a a simple background into why I was interested in clean tech and, and, and energy in particular. Um, and then when I went to, uh, to law school, I realized I didn't want to sort of have a traditional legal career. I ended up uh, heading down to the engineering department at WashU and came across a, um, a really a, sort of, I had a wild-eyed moment of, there was this degree called a Master's of Science in Technology and Human Affairs. Ah, that's what the, those letters were all about. M-S-T-H-A, yeah, it's a sort of a poorly named degree, but it, but in essence it was a chance to um, do an analysis or a survey of, of technologies. I got to choose one that I liked, and then I had to figure out how to um, 
analyze it to see if it was commercially viable. Uh, so it's, it's more like a technology assessment degree than a uh, silly, you know, THA. I don't know why they came up with that, but uh, technology is obviously technology. And human affairs is humans use technology. So that's the background of that. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's kind of dig into this a little bit. You know, a few weeks ago, I think, um, and I was just looking on my phone to try to remember what episode that was, but I had a guy on the show by the name of Alex Epstein. Do you know the name? By name? He is a he's a New York Times bestseller, and he wrote a, a book uh, called "The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels," and uh, his thesis ultimately. So his background is he's a philosopher, and his thesis is that uh, that yeah there may be there 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 may be uh, global warming there may be other things that are kind of coming of uh, of this but the reality is that it's the best option out there uh, in a world that needs energy right and so I got a lot of heat for having him on the show. Well, it's funny. I got a lot of heat from some people, uh, and then I got kudos from other people. And so this is a significantly, uh, you know, hot-button issue. It's polarizing. But for me, I'm very pragmatic about this. First of all, obviously, uh, I I am data-driven, and I really want to know what's real and what's not. And um, to me, if if there is significant science behind this which i believe there is uh, i think it's a smart uh, it's a smart thing to start thinking about solar but what do you what do you let's not take let's not put politics in this this is not a political issue right tell me the science behind this because if 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 the idea behind alex epstein uh, his argument is that you know the science is there but it doesn't say what everybody's saying it it says what how do you counter that well, I'm, I'm also data-driven, and I'm not a climate scientist or a fossil fuel impact expert. Um, I think that at the broadest level, if you're going to be an apologist for fossil fuels, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, I mean if, if today your case is, hey, we're using them, and that's okay, morally it's justifiable, then okay, the, the, the appropriate addendum to that is recognizing that they have done some damage, we don't even need to necessarily quantify it, but let's at least recognize it. And I don't know if his thesis includes that we have done some damage as a result of them, but if your thesis is they were justified in being used, fine. I have no problem with that as a, as a concept or, or precept to the, then the question of, well, then now what? Right. And all of these things are, I, I believe, uh, a part of a continuum. We are not, um, it's one of the greatest things I learned in, in economics was this, this there is no such thing as a steady state. Uh, we are either growing or contracting. Balance everything out, and we look at energy consumption from that perspective, energy consumption is going up. If we now know that the source of energy that we are using predominantly is negatively affecting our ability to live sustainably long-term, and you want to include that in the projections for where you want your kids and then their kids to, to be able to inhabit an Earth, and there's a big question there right there. It, without getting into the politics of it. What does that really mean? Ultimately, we've already burned a lot of carbon. So my interest is, is there an economic case for an alternative to continuing to burn that carbon? And, and ultimately, the answer is yes. What there isn't is an easy path for deployment of capital into those investments to help transition or to uh, accelerate the transition that's going on. Because I think there is a transition going on. We are mm-hmm. burning per capita less fossil fuels and transitioning, I think, and this is a net positive thing, to um, carbon neutral sources of energy. What I think is really uh, an important way to look at most problems uh, on a large scale are uh, just the way you described it. I mean, you're, you're an economist, you know, you're, you're looking at this as a, uh, you know, what drives people to do certain things. And, you know, if you want you, if you want to get people on board, the easiest way to do it is by uh, showing them that it's better for their pocketbook. I mean, regardless of, you know, I don't really understand why this is such a political issue. You know, it seems to me that really this should be something that we look at very objectively. Um, I think the idea of, of 
climate change deniers is kind of silly. Why deny if something seems to be pretty obviously happening? Is there something else behind that other than just to be a person who who wants to to be a naysayer? You know, to be somebody who's just anti, you know, uh, alternative energy to be anti. And I feel like there's a lot of that for some reason. I don't really understand why. But let's look at it from the way that I think most people, most everybody will respond without question, which is what is the, you know, what is the economic, what is the economic argument for alternatives uh, over fossil fuels? Well, it is firstly impossible to fully separate it from politics, right? So if, if you want to have a conversation that says, well, okay, notwithstanding politics, you're leaving out some pretty significant um, levers that are going to affect sure, sure. Um, the, the policies that we've been through. And like big continue. oil, for example. Big oil, and, and without getting into the, cons- you know, the conspiracy theories, which, you know, is there a conspiracy? Sure, but a conspiracy is just a bunch of people agreeing to, for, to work together without transparency. I, I'm not being, I don't think I sound cynical by saying that's probably gone on. Sure. Um, and to the extent, the, you know, there has been uh, big money's interest involved in the politics that set the policy that allowed certain energy sources to have advantages over the other, uh, transitioning out of, of energy, at least it's related, but transitioning from that is the, the fairly now well-publicized transition that LA, the city of LA went through from a nice rail network to one that is dominated by cars. Uh, that was a pretty clearly policy-motivated um, endeavor from the automotive industry. They're like, oh, we, we can sell a lot of cars if there are a lot of roads in L.A. So they went to the powers that be in L.A. and they said, let's rip up those rails and, and build a lot of roads. And now, 50 years later, we're putting a lot of rail in at a huge expense because roads, in fact, are uh, not a panacea to transportation needs. They have congestion issues, just like any infrastructure does. If you have more demand for it, then there is capacity available. And ultimately, that comes back to energy, which is, which is that energy is this thing we all consume. None of us, because of various policy issues and, and politics that have gone into it, are really aware of how much we use. It is absolutely not priced in a transparent way. And my, my deeper philosophy is I really want to make sure people are aware of how much energy they use and have that price of energy be set by a market so that your consumption of energy is actually pocketbook driven and that you decide more, more efficiently what are needs versus wants. You know, we're sitting in a, in a studio right now with really nice lighting on us. That might be something that you, as the, as the producer of the show, decide is a need for your show. Well, you should pay for that. And right now, the light that's coming off those reflectors is not something you're paying for in the same way that anyone else who really actually needs it to read a book, which maybe, in a fair balance, I'd say is a, is a higher need, but you're paying the same kilowatt-hour price for that. We're talking about a very granular analysis of what a kilowatt hour of energy should cost. And it's probably in the weeds from the larger issue right now, which is just, well, the reason we have the situation we do is because 100 years ago when the grid was being laid out, single points of generation, be it a big coal-powered power plant, coal-fired power plant, um, that was really the best and only way to generate energy. To do that required politics to get involved so that someone could raise a bond and issue a bond and have utilities and we have this uh, fairly archaic dinosaur resultant network of utility energy distribution and i'm only talking about electricity natural gas is its own its own thing Um, as far as electricity is concerned 100 years ago it probably made sense and so to the extent i would agree with his thesis of like well to do what we needed to do to get to where we are sure we needed to build a lot burn a lot of coal it's an interesting question in its own right It's kind of vacuous because here we are. We yeah. burned a lot of coal. Yeah. The question for me is now what? So you mentioned deniers, people who just want to be against something for the sake of it. Um, spending a lot of time, once you've identified those people, spending a lot of time debating them is kind of distracting. I'd rather figure out, well, what are the opportunities and let's go after them. And so to the extent I can install an energy system, that you know, a clean energy system that generates electricity today, and make that electricity available to someone for a price that provides a return on the investment I had to expend to install it in the first place, that's what we just need to focus on. 
Well, what about the cost in general, though, right now? I mean, what does it cost to, you know, I don't, I don't really know what a kilowatt of energy looks like, but, right. but, point, the, but the, point, the point being, like, you know, dollar per dollar, which costs more right now? Is it still, uh, is it still the solar energy that costs more? And now we're going to delve into, it's impossible to ignore the, the political and policy questions. If you price in any kind of reasonable externality, You've got now things which are no longer empirical because you've got disagreement on the underlying um, data. Right. Um, do you price in, um, you know, cancer that might be caused by a coal-fired plant? Uh, because I'll guarantee you that the solar energy system on a roof isn't causing that kind of cancer. Um, that said. Well, let's just look at it from the very discrete from the identifiers. kilowatt installed kilowatt base. Price mm-hmm. and this is where you can really justify it and look at it real world um, analysis. Hawaii is a really interesting case study. Hawaii has no uh, fossil fuel available to it locally, so all of the energy they've ever generated on the islands from fossil fuels was imported. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an externality which you know Wyoming doesn't have to worry about because they're digging it out of the ground in Wyoming, but you got to tr- you know transport it to Hawaii. Well, that price gets added on to getting it there. And they have a resultant cost of energy per kilowatt hour that's in the 30 to 40, 50 cents a kilowatt hour range, depending on your... And well, how does that... I, what we, does that we in California here, we pay, you know, at a house, uh, you know, 12 to 15 cents a kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. So four times, easily. Um, solar, if you... And this is the other question that you have to worry about in, in these analyses. Solar is a very long-lived asset. So your return on investment for that long-lived asset should be, appropriately, given it's very low risk as well, uh, not all that high. So a per kilowatt hour price that solar has to compete with is what you don't have to buy from the grid if you install solar, Mm. that avoided cost. If you install a solar system in Hawaii, you are avoiding 40 cents a kilowatt hour energy. So your solar system there has a much better return on investment. So the point being that, you know, there's sort of once you tap into the initial infrastructure, which might uh, in itself initially be more expensive, uh, relatively speaking, that over time, because it's it's sort of a never ending uh, until the sun burns out. Right. It, right. It, it's sort the of the fuel a, source is free. The fuel source is free. And, so and you don't escape economy of scale. So one yeah. of the biggest benefits that the original central point generation paradigm and do you know what I mean by that? Like central point to many. So a single coal-fired power plant would power a city. Right. So you've got 100,000 people with energy from a single point. Yeah. That's, that's very counter to the paradigm of everyone having their own little solar energy system on their roof, but having them all networked together so that if one part of the city is, is cloudy, they can get energy from the other part of the city that isn't. And that's a distributed generation network, right. which is inherently more... Uh, stable if you can manage the energy and that gets into topics which we can talk on later but back to the economic issue um, the underlying economics of a solar system do suffer from or, or benefit from economy of scale so if you could build a single large solar system you're going to have a lower per kilowatt hour resultant energy cost than a small one yeah the irony here is that to me when you say that it, what strikes me is you know we're we're talking about special interests with Absolutely. oil and gas and that sort of thing and solar and solar but to to the extent that the oil and gas and coal industries and such have had a long long time to create these huge um, you know special interest groups and uh, a lot of those companies are are very very large and centralized and what you're talking about is you know sort of a bunch of smaller companies ultimately sort of trying to compete with the special interests of some you know, behemoth oil and gas. And well coal. entrenched. Right. And there's two issues, actually, not just the lobby. Uh, the lobby or the, the policy interests are, at least you can attack them from a, a political perspective. You can say, oh, that's not fair, and that's, that's corrupt politicians. What you can't argue with is that those interests have, I don't know the total number, but I would guess it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars, of spent capital. So they have, an in, they have real investments. They are well, uh, uh, their interests in protecting are, are appropriate. You know, right. you don't want to walk away from a trillion dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question about it. And I, I think I'm just trying to, again, sort of uh, try to understand the issue 
you know, from a thousand feet and, and say a high level and say, well, what, what's going on down there? So, so far to me, um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, what I'm, what I'm gathering is that there's an economic issue uh, that potentially will probably get less expensive as time goes by. So it makes alternatives probably almost certainly will, um, uh, you know, take over the, the status quo as time goes by. Well, well before anybody ever will have to deal with this whole old notion of peak oil because... Well, peak oil itself is a question of, well, how much is the, energy, how much is the oil worth to go dig for? Right. But and, now there's sort of this never ending, you know, now we got fracking. Yeah, now yeah. there is more, more oil in that whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's just, you know, there's just, no, you know, we're not running out of oil and yeah. gas. We didn't leave the, my favorite expression is we didn't leave the stone age because we ran out of stones. Yeah. Right. We're not going to leave the oil age because we ran out of oil. Right. Um, we didn't, we didn't transition from, um, coal to oil because we ran out of coal and we didn't transition from oil to gas because we ran out of yeah. oil. Ultimately, it is the things like special interests which keep those things around longer than they might otherwise be around. And that's not judging it. it it's kind it's of just a, reality. No, I get reality. it. I get it. I get it. I guess my point being that, you know, when we talked about, we've had people on talking, talking about peak oil and such. And, sure. and, and one of the issues there, of course, is, you know, the the idea that they're that the the alternatives are not going to be there in time, not cheap enough in time, and 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 to me that doesn't really seem like the issue at hand. It seems to me like that's, um, uh, I mean that that's a pretty easy, easy not easy transition. But the the reason is not going to be that we don't have the infrastructure for alternatives before we run out of oil. That's not going to be the case. It is a more complicated and multivariant yeah. issue. And it isn't just that we're going to run out of a fuel source. It's that the alternatives that we have to that fuel source actually require a different paradigm of distribution. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, I'm going to burn coal instead of wood or oil instead of coal. It's, oh, if I'm going to use the sun or wind, for that matter, or geothermal, choose your, your energy source, you suddenly need a different distribution network, which brings with it uh, not, not just the political entrenched policy issues of like, why do utilities have monopolies to sell energy, which is a huge issue and one of my passions. Mm -hmm. But what is the right way to pay for and price energy? Because if you're making energy on your roof and someone down the street would like to use that energy, today they can't access it. It's not available to them. Legally, it is, it is, not, it is not legal for you to sell that energy to them unless you are a utility. So if you make energy, you can't sell directly to, but you can sell to utilities. Yeah. In some states... Yeah, utilities are required to allow that energy to be put onto their grid for their distribution. It's interesting because there are some. Uh, there's at least one blockchain project. I think I can't remember what it's called, but uh, there's at least one blockchain project which is designed to have it so that people, energy producers, can sell directly. Did I send that to you? I, I well, I think I told you about it initially, but I don't. There are a couple. So yeah. block, blockchain, as a yeah. total aside to energy is one of these enabling transitional tra transitional technologies, which, but let me take a pause for a second. One of my favorite futurists is a guy named Tony Seba. And he's got a book out, I'll plug his book, whatever, it's a, it's a great book. Um, what Tony Seba does is synthesize energy storage, energy generation, uh, and he doesn't care about renewables or not. He's, he's not a renewable wonk. He's not trying to say solar is better. He's just saying, look at the changing dynamics. And the smart car, uh, solar, um, and network uh, effects, the, the benefits of a network, um, uh, are transitional and, more importantly, are disruptive. And um, I, I don't even want to spend a lot of time talking about what he says, except when he presents it in a way which people who know the space would say, oh, I already know that, I already know that. What he manages to do is synthesize the fact that if you think about solar in a silo, it's, it's not the full solution. Yeah. Solar on its own is not the solution. Um, Tesla is a you know, great company, fantastic cars, but batteries are themselves not the solution. Right. But solar plus storage, suddenly you have the underlying technology necessary for a solution, except you're still now running into economies of scale and, more importantly, transactional efficiency. Now you bring into that the network of two solar systems with batteries that are connected and that can work off of each other, multiply that by 
n number of solar systems and, and, and batteries. How do you manage that? Well, blockchain is the potential answer. So yeah. I'm very interested in blockchain <clears throat> technologies as they are able to be applied to helping transition to this new paradigm. Because one thing is that utilities are not set up to do is, and they're not, by design, they're not technology companies. Yeah. And yet blockchain is a clearly a technology-heavy... Well, uh, yeah, to the extent that, uh, uh, you know, I think that the, that blockchain is going to, or distributed ledger technology in general is going to, is going to uh, make a lot of these things more efficient. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge believer in that. I just recently... I don't know that I'm. Uh, I don't think I can say it yet because I was in a private group. But there was a another industry that just got hit with blockchain uh, uh, efficiency. That's gonna you know make some people a lot of money. But um, so it happens. Now, what I will uh, let me let me shift here a little bit. First of all, why solar? Why is is solar better than geothermal or wind or anything like? Just you know, for somebody who doesn't really know that much. My interest in solar. Um, is independent of the fact that I was raised in a solar home. <laughs> yeah. um, I came to it sort of as a dispassionate, objective analysis of the alternative uh, technologies that were part of the solution. It is not the only solution. Uh, I like solar, though, because it has no moving parts, so there's very low maintenance. The sun is fairly predictable. Even if you're in a cloudy situation, uh, the clouds will part. Um, and... Are you familiar at all with, with peak demand and, and the duck curve and these other sort of cliche yeah, terms? Well, the, 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 that the sun shines during the day is a better alignment of the need for energy than wind, for example, which tends to blow at night. Oh, I see. So what do you do with a bunch of wind that's being blown at night? You end up using a lot of that energy to pump water uphill so you can release it during the day. It's called pumped hydro but you're actually then not using the wind energy directly, you're using it to pump water. So you can release the water during the day and let that help the grid stay up and running when everyone in LA is turning on their air conditioners. Solar is on during the day, and if it's hot in LA, it's probably because the sun is out. So if everyone turns on their air conditioners, the sun might also be shining. Now you have a, a real issue, which is when the sun starts to set in the hottest part of the afternoon, the AC stays on, and the power from the solar systems starts to decline. Mm. That's why you need some sort of storage to go with your solar. Storage today is about where solar was maybe 10 years ago. I mean, margins of error of, of decade development. But from that perspective, I like solar because it is a material science-based technology, which is very well understood. It is efficient enough. You know, Betamax might have been better than VHS, but VHS was good enough to dominate. Um, solar, uh, there are better technologies, more efficient technologies within solar, but flat plate silicon is probably good enough to provide all the energy we need for this sort of, you know, futuristic uh, self-generation and storage paradigm that, that I want to help come to be, come to pass. Wind is great, you know, wind is great, but it's got moving parts. So you need someone to go out there and lubricate the thing. Right. Geothermal is great. I haven't seen any studies that suggest we're going to run out of the, you know, the heat from the Earth's core anytime soon. So if you've got, you know, Iceland, um, I think we were talking about Iceland's uh, recent use of, of geothermal to become the, they're using more energy now to mine Bitcoin yeah. than, um, than their own electricity consumption. Yeah. And it's because it's really, really inexpensive. Right. Geothermal, once you've dug that hole, just let steam out. If you have steam, you can turn a turbine and make energy really cheap. Solar doesn't even have a turbine. It just makes energy directly from the sun. So it's solid state. Right. So let's talk a little bit about, okay, so we've talked a little bit about the, you know, the, the realities of alternatives versus, you know, dirty, quote unquote, dirtier fuels, and, you know, and then we've talked a little bit about the, um, you know, the benefits of the various kinds. Let's shift kind of on a more granular level because at the end of the day, this is a, uh, uh, there's a, there's an audience here who's a, a, a lot of investors and particularly people who are investing in private placements, et cetera. You know, one of the things that I find very fascinating about when you and I talked about this, cause I had an interest in potentially uh, investing in something uh, that you were doing 
was that there are differences in the way that investments in solar energy are treated uh, for the tax code uh, between that and, and oil and gas, which is obviously extremely favorable. And uh, maybe start with just, you know, outlining what those differences are. And then, you know. At a very high level, yeah. it's, it's at a very high level, the differences are exactly where politics and policy <laughs> yeah. intersect with special interests. Right. Um, there is no question that if you're, if you're honest about energy, you will see that it is heavily tax incentivized. Sure. Regardless of the, of the type. <clears throat> yeah. And I come across people all the time who say, oh, solar is a total, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, um, it's subsidized by the government. And so therefore the economics aren't real. And, I don't even know where to begin unless you say, are you willing to have an apples-to-apples -apples comparison with yeah. the subsidies well, of oil and gas and nuclear gas? Let's, let's do this, because I think this audience is very familiar with oil and gas. I mean, this. so the way, just as a, as a review for, for any of you, if you don't remember this, oil and gas drilling, uh, tremendous tax benefits here, because... What happens is that there's a, uh, effectively, you, if you invest, say you're investing $100,000, you get to take depreciation on the drilling equipment uh, that the, the, you know, that the operator has. It might be as high as, I've had it, uh, investments as high as 85% in the first year. So effectively, what that means is you invested $100,000 and you got it. $85,000 tax write-off. That's even if you're a W-2, by the way. So you can get, you know, you can make your investment and then 85, who knows, 90% of it, whatever, becomes a tax write-off. And then on top of that, when you start getting, well, I should say if and when, because drilling is part of the issue is that you may not see that again. But so right away, though, you've got the tax equivalent of maybe a 30 to 40 percent return on investment in the first year just because of the tax savings. But then you start getting cash flow and the cash flow itself has uh, additional tax advantages. So up to about it probably comes out to about 50 percent of the cash flow that comes from that investment, again, is tax sheltered. So this is an enormous, enormous uh, you know, tax beneficial investment. And if, you know, recent, we had, recently uh, had Tom Wheelwright, who's uh, Robert Kiyosaki's CPA on, uh, and a friend of mine, and, 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 and Tom uh, points out in his books, Tax-Free Wealth, that ultimately the, our, the, the tax code is written by the, uh, by the government or the special interest or whoever it is to create certain policies, Right. We can dictate what we want people to do by making it an advantage for them uh, through the tax code. So this obviously is a huge, huge advantage to investors to invest in oil and gas. And you could say that, yeah, I mean, I think from the standpoint of all of what's going on in the Middle East and et cetera, that there is a strong necessity of, of uh, energy independence. But shouldn't that also be the case for alternative energies? Because, again, if our goal is ultimately um, energy independence, it's not just oil and gas, right? So, so, t so with that same $100,000, say I come to you and I want to make an investment through Wiser Capital. Tell, tell us how that's going to work from the tax and cash standpoint. Forget Wiser Capital for a second. That, yeah. That the, the first the thing I the thing that is is worth pointing out the specific legislation um, that you're referring to that is benefiting drilling, but not solar, uh, or or wind for that matter. Any renewable energy is um, a structure called the MLP, the Master Limited Partnership. Um, the legislation that enables the tax policy for MLPs specifically excludes renewables. So it's almost like it's saying if you're going to rate the earth, here's a bunch of tax benefits. But if you're going to do all this do-gooder stuff, you better pay taxes on it. Which, from a policy perspective, is a little backwards. Yeah. Um, and as an example of, you know, without getting too cynical, 
there probably was an oil and gas lobbyist who went in to help craft that final language, which made it an advantage to the oil and gas industry and a disadvantage to the solar industry. So solar does not get the same tax favorable treatment. So talk, so talk about that though. No, so so that MLP model that you're talking about, um, how does that how does that change um, the returns? You know that an investor sees then. And it's even more complicated than just that level because you mentioned that you get the returns, you can take those tax benefits against your W-2. The tax benefits, and solar does get tax benefits, I'm not going to suggest that it doesn't, but those tax benefits themselves are actually shielded from W-2 investors. You have to have the right kind of tax liability to participate in the tax benefits that solar produces. So with that same $100,000, without knowing... Without getting into whether or not you can take the tax benefits, here's what the tax benefits are. $100,000 investment in solar in your home gives you a 30% tax credit against your personal income, regardless of the site. So So, tax credit. But it has to be on your home. Okay, on your home. On your home. We don't do residential projects. Sure. Uh, It's a very well-served space. If you want to go solar, you don't need to spend a dime. You can go get someone to finance your solar system. And they will take that 30% tax benefit. Um, the commercial sector that, that we serve, um, which is this very un, under, underserved market, uh, very vague, as, as just a quick aside, really small projects on homes are easy to finance for solar. Really, really big projects are easy to finance, and I mean easy in, in quotes. <laughs> There's still a lot of complications that go on with it, but this, the, the capital is available for those projects. Medium-scale projects you know, of $100,000 which is not a trivial amount of money, um, they get the tax benefits as follows. 30% of the value of the solar system is available in the form of a tax credit. So you get 30% of your your capital back by not paying taxes that you otherwise have to pay. And then there are depreciation schedules, which are very advantageous as well, that solar does qualify for. and uh, I'm in conversations right now with some CPAs about how to interpret the new tax code. Um, there are bonuses on top of that accelerated depreciation, which are a part of the new tax code. Um, the, the net result is, and this is where the math gets a little funny, if you take the 30% tax credit, which if you can, you should, you then have to reduce the basis available for depreciation by half of the tax credit. So if you take 30% tax credit, half of that is 15, mm-hmm. and you reduce your basis by 15. So your basis that you can then depreciate is 85% of that original $100,000. Mm-hmm. So you can depreciate $85,000 against whatever schedule you can apply. I think, and I'm not giving tax advice here, but I think the schedule this year is 100%. So if that's true, if you can take that bonus depreciation in the year that you place that capital uh, in the if you place the investment in service, you can fully depreciate the whole thing in year one. Yeah. What you're left with then is a fully <laughs> depreciated asset that is just going to start producing cash flow. Now, unlike the oil and oil and gas uh, investments, that cash flow is just ordinary income, which is then going to be taxed at whatever your marginal rate is. If you can't take the tax benefits that the investment provides you have to then carry your loss forward and you can shelter the income from those solar investments and never pay taxes on them. That is ultimately the value of the, of the investments in these projects. So, so we, we provide an a, a easy way of calculating it is after tax IRR on these projects is just the cash flow and then you can kind of know that you're not going to pay taxes on it and keep it very simple. How You're not going to take, you're not going to pay taxes on it if you're doing a, a carry forward. If you have the disposable, if you have the, not disposable income, if you have the taxable income to use up the 30% tax credit and the accelerated depreciation, you're probably going to. Yeah. Well, and I just point out here, because this is actually a little bit different, I think, than our discussion before, because I think the laws have changed. This is actually... It's an unknown time right now. It's actually more favorable than it was. Because if you think about it, you know, the credit is better... The credit is definitely better than taking uh, the depreciation. Oh, you want to take the credit? Right, you yeah. right. So if you're taking it on one year, you're you're taking the depreciation as a write-off, but the credit is actually coming off of straight off your tax line. And so, right. for example, the best 
uh, short of active participation in the industry. The, the um, tax credit is available against other passive income. Right. And that has to be qualifying passive income from either another solar project or real estate income. Well, yeah, right. And then the other thing is we, uh, uh, you know, there's a number of different things that people, uh, you know, in, in passive income. Uh, for example, if you own businesses, um, you know, that's that's my probably my biggest source of, of uh, passive income is right there. Um, but this is actually no different from recently. We had uh, an ATM offering, which was a Section 179 offering, and really it benefited people who had um, passive income because they couldn't take it against the actual asset that had to come off of different things. But what's interesting is uh, once this income starts coming out, uh, so if you didn't if you didn't take advantage of it because maybe you were a W-2 and that's your only source of income, the, the income that comes out is then sheltered for the most yes. part. But you're not going to generate enough income to... Pro you can carry it forward, I think, 10 years. Uh -huh. I don't think you'll use up all of the income or all of the shelter available from the income. But again, that gets back to your previous Why question. is that, though? I mean, I because thought... Because energy the... is so inexpensive. Right. The only charge I can make for solar, and again, I don't believe in doing any solar investments because it feels good for the Earth. Yes, sure. that's great. Fantastic if we're helping the Earth. I think it should make sense economically. If you can buy energy for four cents a kilowatt hour in Wyoming, I can't sell you energy from a solar system at a cost of money that will make sense for any of the participants. So I'm gonna, uh, I want to, I want to make this as concrete as possible for people who are trying to think about whether this makes sense for them. So let me, let me, let me ask you. Okay, I'm an investor. I come to you and I say, Stephen, I've got a hundred thousand dollars to deploy. And I want to do this in two different scenarios, okay? So first, I've got plenty of uh, I've got plenty of passive income. Uh, tell me what my pro forma might look like, and I, I, I'm not asking you to give me you know guaranteed numbers or anything like that. Your we all, may vary. yeah, yeah, your mileage may vary, but to, you know, again, sort of typical project. Sure. All right, I've got passive income. So you know, I want to take all these losses. So let's let's just assume that you know i'm going to be able to write off that entire investment the first year don't add that though to my returns what are my returns cash on cash after that and, and ultimately it comes down to um how much can you sell the energy for right so my underlying interest in this is that I, my thesis is energy is the least elastic commodity there is you're gonna buy electricity mm -hmm. and if you don't especially if you're a business yeah your business is going to suffer Sure. So I'm willing to make that bet that you're going to buy energy. Okay. If I can sell you that energy for less than you would buy it from the grid, even better. Now, if you stop buying it from me because you default and you still need energy, you're going to spend more from the grid. Yeah. So you've got a built-in default penalty. All right. I got it. But I'm, I'm an investor. Tell me what the numbers are. <laughs> yeah. You're going to get that return. Yeah. So right away the risk to that investment is much, much lower sure. than the return that I'm about to tell you about really would support from alternative investments. Got it. I always like doing the math because it, it keeps it honest. $100,000 might buy you a 50-kilowatt solar system. That 50-kilowatt solar system would probably produce 75,000 kilowatt hours a year. If you sell each kilowatt hour, and this is the key, key part, because the solar energy is worthless unless you're selling it, if you sell each of those kilowatt hours for 10 cents a kilowatt hour, you're going to generate $7,500 a year. Okay. Let's do the quick math check. Did I get that right? 10 cents times 75. So it's 7.5%. 7.5%. So what's so to me, this is really actually, you know, actually better than I even thought. I'm glad I'm talking to you about well, it. Well, that's assuming you can get the 10 cents. Okay. And remember, you're going to negotiate this contract with someone who's going to want to spend as little as possible. And if they're already buying their energy for seven cents, why would they do that? So it depends on what state you're doing this in. Hawaii. All right. Where they're selling, where you're, they're buying energy for forty cents, you could sell your energy for. I've got projects there that sell energy for twenty-five cents a kilowatt hour. Okay, so now if you have something that's twenty-five cents, now what's the return on that? That's pretty good, right? Uh, that's two and a half times the seven and a half percent that you just. Talked <laughs> yeah, right. About. Now that's it. Right. That same solar system costs more to install there. Right. So this is not... Okay, so how much does something like that cost? And that's also a moving target. Um, solar, 
in Hawaii is actually one of the more challenging states to do it in right now, even though the economics are so attractive, and that's because the solar energy systems have, have become so widespread that the grid is actually suffering from, and this is something that the, the naysayers uh, love to point to, but solar is not a dependable resource. It only works when the sun shines, and the grid, which needs to be a dependable infrastructural attribute, um, is, is put at risk when you have solar above a certain level on it. Uh, the managers of the grid have a hard time managing the grid with a lot of solar. So in Hawaii, um, I don't even know, I've, I've stopped doing work in Hawaii because of this. I don't know what today's status is, okay. but it's hard to put a solar but, but system. What do you tell an investor, though? I mean, I'm coming at you, and, you know, I've got 700 people who are in this accredited investor group. Right. If they and, wanted to put money to work, and this is really why MLPs became an issue, um, yeah. I would love to have put together an MLP. In fact, I, I sent a petition to the White House, you know, many, many yeah, years yeah. ago, and, and to try and get them to adjust the MLP. There were attempts to do it. Uh, Senator Coons was trying to do it. Um, it falls on deaf ears. Uh, the but it, but, but it doesn't happen. happen now. It doesn't, right. So, but in today's world. If you could put together a, a, a pool of accredited investors who wanted to participate in this asset class. Like a syndication, we've done that, you know. A syndication. Yeah. Then you can go probably drive 75 8% uh, uh, cash-on-cash returns um, with the right economics in the building of the solar system for as little as possible, which is something we're pretty good at doing, and the selling of energy for as much as possible, but not more than they yeah. could buy the energy from the and, and when you say, um, by the way, this was not a setup. <laughs> he's, he's bringing this up. When you say through a syndication, is that because you would need to have a project of, you know, substance? You need to raise, you know, you'd ha you need to have, you know, three, four million dollars in capital or something like that to in order to get a project that would allow you to get that so, kind of leverage. As, as a bit of background, the, the reason the middle market, these medium scale commercial projects aren't well served is because they're hard to underwrite. You know, your, your typical you know, medium-scale commercial enterprise does not have a FICO score like a homeowner does, but also doesn't have a public bond rating. So what Wiser Capital does is actually assigns a, an underwriting score, uh, the Wiser Solar Asset Rating. And so what, we're, what we are set up to do is quickly underwrite projects. And um, the, the market is still very challenging to find projects. The sales cycle is still very long. So if you want to invest in this, you'd say, where would you start? And I'd say, well, come to us. We'll help you. Tell us you're interested in this, and we'll help you put your money to work. Yeah. Um, once you've found the project and you know what your returns are, now you have to go get the system built. And that means interfacing with the construction trades that build these systems. And they are margin-driven. So they want to do as little work as possible for as much money as possible. I mean, don't we all? But so they, you guys, well, that's what you guys do, right? We, we do that mm -hmm. whole thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then finally... Putting the transaction together is not trivial, and there's, there's, if you want me to go into this, there's a couple specific pieces of the transaction. One, the term of art is a power purchase agreement, a PPA, and that's a long-term contract that basically is what it sounds like. It's a power purchase agreement between uh, the owner of the solar system and the entity where that solar system is installed to buy the energy that solar system generates. And that's perfect for a commercial enterprise that doesn't want to own a solar system because why would they put their capital into a, a solar system? They make widgets. They should invest in more, more widget manufacturing. Um, they need energy, and they want to hedge against future cost escalations and maybe save marketing, we get green energy, whatever. That's up to them. Really what they want is a predictable cost of energy that's generated on-site. So they sign a PPA, Power Purchase Agreement, for X numbers of cents per kilowatt hour. And then I make sure that solar system that gets installed will produce those kilowatt hours. And then once the operations begin and you, you start generating energy, it's a monthly billing system that looks a lot like collecting rent from a real estate property. You sell energy, you uh, monitor, it's all digitally monitored and, and uh, uh, online access. The host, as we call the entity that's buying the power, the host can see to you know, make sure that the system is working as it should. And they get a bill from us for the energy that we sold them. It's pretty cool. Well, you know, particularly for people who do have a lot of uh, uh, passive uh, passive income, 
this is uh, this is something that uh, it certainly might be worth taking a look at. It actually, uh, to be quite frank, is it's actually better than I <laughs> than I thought it would be. Because you know the thing with oil and gas that sort of drives me crazy is that in, I have invested in oil and gas for for tax purposes in the past, but I don't anymore for the most part because um, you know I put the money in and I never see any returns. And I and I I know. I know the companies who have a good reputation, et cetera. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, this uh, drilling is a high risk thing. And then on top of that, the price of uh, the price of oil is really um, is really not conducive to, to profit. So so if you're looking at this differently now, if you do have a lot of potential passive income, uh, that uh, you know that that you want sheltered. Now this is a great opportunity because uh, what you're looking at there is being able to offset you know that income and take the depreciation and the credits and then have a much more reliable uh, and conservative uh, you know flow of of cash flow after that. Right? You don't. It's not one of those things where you've got. You know, you're going to just bury your money into this and, and uh, you know, maybe if you get a few bucks later in a few years that you're happy about, because that's the way I feel about oil and gas. This is this this is like, OK, if you've got the ability to do it with passive income, which I know a number of listeners here do, uh, this is a really good opportunity. So, Stephen, if, if people want to get um, some, uh, you know, people are interested in this and want to talk to you about it more, how do they how do they reach you? Uh, the best way is is uh, probably via email, um, and uh, my contact information is uh, available on our website, wisercapital.com. Um, and, uh, we'll have that all in the show notes as well. So, um, I, uh, To the extent it's you know, related to a specific investment, um, my email is sch at wisercapital.com. Um, if people have interest in things outside of solar specifically, um, sch at adachase.com, E-T-A-C-H-A-S-E. Uh, that's uh, my, my personal direction where, you know, things outside of Wiser Capital specifically get uh, get sent. Fantastic. Stephen, thanks for being on Wealth Formula Podcast today. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Okay, welcome back to the show, everyone. Hopefully that was a fair and balanced interview. I think it was. We just basically talked about the facts, right? And uh, it was also uh, talking about the opportunity uh, to invest. So if you want to you know, uh, hit up Stephen for some possible ways to invest in alternatives, uh, make sure you do that. Uh, I want to remind you again about once before, once again before we leave about our hundredth show coming up. Make sure that you go to wealthformula.com, leave your comments, good or bad. I just won't play the bad ones, and uh, and I'll play them on. I'll play the good ones on the show. I'm just kidding. If you have bad stuff to say, I'll play that too. All right. Just tell me what your favorite episodes of the year were. Tell me what you liked about them. Tell me what Wealth Formula uh, podcast does for you. Uh, this will be really exciting. Uh, I, I want to share that uh, a special show with you, uh, so make sure you do that. Hey, by the way, if you're interested uh, and you subscribe, is that what you do? You subscribe to Spotify? Uh, if you're on Spotify, Wealth Formula Podcast is now on Spotify as well. Now, I don't actually use Spotify. I don't know very much about it, but uh, according to uh, Phil, my media guy, I'm the only one on the planet who does not. So hopefully uh, this will be of use to you and you might be able to find Well Formula Podcast in more than one uh, place. So Spotify. That's all I've got for this week. This is Buck Joffrey with Well Formula Podcast signing off. 
Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.